Hello, bonjour, and you're very welcome today to our podcast at CMAJ. In Canada, about 500,000 people present to an emergency room with chest pain, but many don't appear to receive follow-up from a physician after discharge, and that's despite the significant benefits associated with follow-up care. I'm Donald McCauley, Associate Editor of CMAJ, and today we're speaking to Dr. Dennis Coe, co-author of a research article that looked at understanding this gap in practice. Dennis, nice to talk to you, and you're based at the Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre in Toronto, and you're an interventional cardiologist. Tell us a little bit about your work. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Um, What we were interested in is exactly what you said. Um, We were interested in uh, looking at what happens to patient after they get discharged. You know, there are currently no practice guidelines from the Canadian Cardiovascular Society on this topic. Uh, In the United States, interestingly, they actually, their guidelines advocate that patients after discharge should see a physician within 22 hours uh, of their emergency room discharge because there's still significant risk of potential adverse complications. These recommendations were largely based on consensus from the United States. But we've looked at this uh, topic before um, in a paper that we've published uh, approximately a year ago. We looked at patients who had high-risk characteristics, you know, namely those with diabetics as well as prior cardiac conditions, and actually found that when they had a physician follow-up with either primary care physician or cardiologist physician uh, follow-up, they actually had significantly improved outcomes with you know, lower risk of myocardial infarction or death. Um, so in this uh, subsequent paper, we really want to know why they were not seen. And we looked at a cohort uh, in Ontario between April 2004 and 2010. We again looked at this cohort of you know, higher-risk chest pain patients because we didn't feel that all patients may need follow-up uh, after um, their chest pain visit. And instead of using 72 hours as recommended uh, in the United States, we looked at a time frame of 30 days. And because we felt that this time frame is, is more realistic in Canadian context. And we found, what we found was that, you know, among the 56,000 patients invalidated in our study, about one in four patients did not get physician follow-up. So that's about 25%. Um, about 70% were seen by uh, a primary care physician. And about 17% were seen by cardiologists um, within 30 days. And I think that the main thing that we were most surprised is the fact that we observed that patients uh, with comorbidities and those with higher risk of uh, future adverse cardiovascular events were paradoxically less likely to receive follow-up care. And I'll give you one example that was striking to me. Um, we thought that you know, patient who had a heart attack and you know coming to the emergency room with assessment of chest pain, and you know they were didn't have a heart attack and they were subsequently discharged, and would have more follow up. And in fact, this was not the case. And in fact, it was the opposite. So this patient with heart attack actually has a less less likelihood of uh, getting follow up down the road which is quite opposite than what we would think uh, in clinical practice. And actually, we saw that, um, you know, lower likelihood of follow-up in a lot of other comorbidities as well. Instead, we found that physician follow-up after chest pain visits were strongly driven by non-clinical factors, such as access of care. So, you know, I think that one of the most uh, striking thing was that when we looked at, um, you know, the highest likelihood of follow-up, we found that people who had a primary physician visit were six times more likely to see their primary care physician follow-up afterwards. And also people with established relationship with cardiologists were also three times more likely to see a cardiologist. 
Uh, also, you know, I think um, we we found um, some structural characteristics, such as if you got discharged um, at an emergency department with high volume, you were about twice as likely to see a cardiologist. So I think this is somewhat at odds with clinical practice. I think what we would what we would expect is that you know people who need it most would get the most follow up, and in fact, you know, it's based on really whether they have prior access or not. So this is kind of, I think, the most striking finding that we uh, we felt in our study. That's fascinating. Now, let, let me take you back a little bit, Dennis, because sure. people will be wondering about the data set and how you identified these patients. Um, I see you used the National Ambulatory Care Reporting System database. Yep. How accurate is that? How did you identify these patients and what were the characteristics that you used to identify this group of patients? Yeah, so we actually used the administrative database that uh, housed at uh, ISIS, the Institute for Clinical Evaluative, Evaluative Sciences, where, where I'm a senior scientist there. Uh, and we linked up the, that database with a lot of database that's available to us, such as uh, the drug databases, the follow-up databases, the, the OHIP billing, as well as administrative databases. So I think that you know, when we looked in previously uh, studies to validate um, these characteristics, it's it's pretty good. I think one of the limitations that we don't have is that we don't have all the clinical characteristics of this patient. So we don't really have um, characteristics such as, you know, how their chest pain is like. We don't have the laboratory investigations and things like that. But in terms of the comorbidities, uh, as well as the emission diagnosis, uh, we felt that this is pretty accurate in this database. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that struck me was, you know, of these patients who weren't followed up, yeah. How you know were these patients with genuine cardiac chest pain, and how can we identify? Of course, that's difficult to identify from a database. Yeah. But I, I was interested. You identified these patients as being of particularly high risk. That's correct. I think that it is you know because we don't have the clinical characteristics of how their chest pain is. You know whether it's angina or non-cardiac chest pain. We felt that taking the highest risk cohort would be the most reasonable because we felt that most of those patients would probably need follow-up. So we looked at people with diabetes, who had a prior heart attack, who had heart failure. And actually, in fact, um, our first paper was to look at whether it's beneficial or not. And we looked at physician follow-up um, and compared the outcomes to people who did not. And we showed that there was a lower chance of having you know, either myocardial infarction or death. And so I think that gave us some confidence to say, well, we might not be able to identify the chest pain characteristics, but you know, seeing a physician is definitely important for this cohort. And that's why we kind of uh, sought to look at more factors associated with why they were not uh, getting physician follow-up down the road as, uh, as our subsequent paper. When you say physician follow-up, yep. what, what would you really have in mind? What should we be thinking about in terms of physician follow-up? I think physician follow-up, when they see a doctor after the initial emergency visit, uh, I think there are a few opportunities to improve care. I think one is that in the Canadian setting, um, you know, when you go to the hospital with chest pain, I think the main job of the emergency physician uh, doctor uh, is really to rule out a heart attack. Uh, And if they don't have, you know, significant ECG changes, if they don't have uh, positive enzymes to identify heart attack, they would leave it up to the follow-up physician to evaluate care. So I think they, uh, as a cardiologist, you know, I would see this patient and often I would do, you know, a stress test to evaluate the extent of ischemia or whether this is maybe non-cardiac and they might not need any further therapy. 
And also, I think there are opportunities to improve care. Uh, you know, for example, you know, if people who had ischemic chest pain, sometimes they get, you know, put on more uh, secondary prevention medication. Sometimes they get referred for cardiac station and um, subsequent uh, coronary vascularization. And that's what we have seen as well. We saw that uh, when we compare patient who had physician follow-up versus no physician follow-up, there was significant difference in the processes of care, such as use of medication, use of cardiac catheterization, use of you know revascularization procedures like angioplasty or bypass surgery. Uh, when you have follow-up versus when you don't. Yeah, I mean, the interventional aspect is very interesting. One of the things that I, I picked out and was a, in your paragraph on the patient characteristics stratified by follow-up, and that is about the patients who saw a cardiologist in the emergency department. Uh, it seems that only 2.5 of patients actually had a consultation with a cardiologist, and 0.5% had a stress test. So how does that sound to you as a, as a, as a cardiologist? Uh, I, I think that, you know, in Ontario, the access to a cardiologist as well as stress tests um, in the hospital, in the emergency room, uh, varies a lot. So I think I work in Toronto in a, academic centers, you know, access to cardiologists is much easier. Uh, but even that, to get a stress test within a few hours, uh, it's quite difficult. Particularly, you know, currently there are a lot of initiatives to shorten the wait time in the emergency room. And often we're, you know, we're being pushed to have a decision of where the patient should be admitted to be discharged uh, with, within a few hours. So I think that is quite consistent with um, the clinical um, context that, you know, I think most of the decisions are based by the emergency physician. Uh, and the main job is to rule out myocardial function. And less likely, I think they would consult us when they're not certain. Uh, and really, uh, we base these decisions based on, you know, our, our clinical findings. And it's, you know, we don't have a lot of uh, testing to uh, to help to assist this decision. Yeah, what struck me, and, and perhaps it's a little bit unfair to extrapolate from this study, was that isn't the current movement towards a very immediate access to interventional cardiology? And it, it, it seemed that many of these patients didn't have immediate access to interventional cardiology. Yeah, so I think that cohort... Um, um, is a bit different. So I think if you have identified a heart attack, so for example, people with, um, you know, ST7 elevation myocardial infarction, you know, those you know, large heart attack, I think now I think the system in Ontario is such that, you know, a lot of patients go directly to the cath lab and would get an intervention quite early. Um, so I think this is a population that is not identified of having a heart attack yet. And so I think and I think it's interesting because I think this group of patients is much larger uh, than uh, the, the people who have a heart attack. So if you look at, you know, anybody who comes in uh, with uh, into the hospital with chest pain, the majority of them actually gets discharged. And I think they, you know, um, the access for these patients are quite different from the ones who had identified a heart attack. I think this is what we found here is that, you know, a very small minority of them uh, get to see a cardiologist after discharge. Dennis, another thing that struck me, and my background is as a primary care physician, uh -huh. was the huge ratio re uh -huh. relative to patients who had seen a primary care physician beforehand. What, what do you think does that mean? What, how would you interpret that figure? Yeah, I thought we thought that was interesting too. Uh, I think that um, it's really an access issue. So I think that when these patients get discharged, you know, they are often advised to, well, why don't you go and see your family physician, check it out, make sure it's okay. Uh, for the ones that you know have a family physician, I think they uh, it's fine. I think they, you know, call the family physician and get an appointment. But for the ones who 
do not have a family physician, you know, where do they go? Like, I think that, you know, it's very difficult to find a new family physician to, to take that advice. And I think that's what we see. For people who has no established relationship with a doctor, it is quite difficult to get a new physician within, you know, a few days to a month to see somebody when you just get discharged from the emergency room. I think that's uh, what we observe, and that's why uh, the odds ratio, it's, it was six. It was six times more likely. Yeah. It's, it's so high, yeah. Yeah, that, I mean, that was very striking. So access, you think, is, is the issue. Perhaps yeah. perhaps it may be worth looking at the ER link with family physicians to try yeah. and ensure that patients like that do have follow-up with the family physician. Yeah, I think so. I think uh, at this time, I think most of the emergency room has little contact with the family physician, as, at least it's in my experience. Um, I think that, you know, this is one of the things that um, that potentially should change over time. I think right now there's been a lot of incentives to have um, these rapid chest pain center or rapid referral center to say, well, the emergency room can book an appointment for these patients because, you know, it is quite difficult to call up the family doctor to get an appointment for these patients. So instead, you know, there are these new rapid referral centers, um, you know, to um, to get these patient rapid follow-up. But I think that is something that is of interest. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, we, but unfortunately, I don't think our system, uh, it's set up that way that the emergency room can call the family physician office very quickly to get patients appointment. Dennis, can I ask you about something that I find very intriguing in the paper? And I think it's your own hypothesis. I find it really very interesting. And that's the treatment risk paradox, which you describe. And I think you described mm-hmm. it in a previous paper. Perhaps yeah. you'd explain a little bit about that. Yeah, so I think we um, uh, have looked at this aspect uh, almost more than a decade ago. And, you know, in the previously, we looked at um, the use of statin therapy or lipid-lowering therapy. So uh, we felt that, you know, it's a concept of relative risk versus absolute risk. So if you apply a therapy uh, to a low-risk patient, um, you know, although the therapy is the same, your absolute risk reduction is quite small. So let's say there's a 30-year-old person with high cholesterol. Um, you know, you have to treat a lot of them to prevent one death because, you know, their survival is so high. On the other hand, um, you know, if you have a, let's say, a 75-year-old person with high cholesterol, treating them with lipid-lowering therapy with statin, your number needed to treat uh, is much lower, meaning that you don't have to treat a 1,000 person. You might need to treat like 50 people to save one life. And the treatment risk paradox is a term that we use when we observe this phenomenon that instead of the older person having more treatment, or at least the same as the younger person, most of our therapy is concentrated on the younger person with low risk. So we observe, um, you know, the use of lipid-lowering therapy, the use of, you know, invasive therapy are all concentrated on person with a lower risk. So I think that is the issue that the high-risk patient often gets ignored or, or in some way biased against because, you know, it is difficult to, more difficult to treat uh, somebody at higher risk. And so that's, it's kind of just um, opposite to what it should happen if you are looking at the efficiency of the system. Dennis, could you summarize just the main points, what you feel the main message of the paper is for our listeners? Yeah, I think that, you know, if I were to summarize it um, in Ontario, you know, in this cohort of patients with high-risk characteristics such as those with diabetes or prior cardiac condition. Uh, I think the first gap of, in knowledge is that, you know, about one in four 
patients do not get any follow-up uh, within 30 days of the emergency room visit. And then the, the second thing is that these patients who do not get visits are mainly because they have less access to prior physician visit. And also the third point is that how we manage them in terms of physician follow-up is not based on the clinical characteristics, so such as high-risk patients or the people who had more chance of having a heart attack did not get more visits. In fact, they got less visits. So I think those are the main points of, of the paper. I think in emergency room, we need to think about who are the vulnerable population, you know, who we really need to make sure they have uh, a physician follow-up after the, their discharge. We've been speaking today to Dr. Dennis Coe from the Institute of Clinical Evaluative Science at the Department of Medicine Sunnybrook Health Centre at the University of Toronto. Dennis, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure.